Welcome to the Public Morality. Recently, ProPublica, the investigative journalism news organization, released a story that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, over multiple decades, failed to disclose lavish gifts, notably luxury travel, from Texas billionaire Harlan Crow. According to ProPublica, Thomas and his wife Jenny have been treated to lavish vacations, including a 2019 vacation in Indonesia on Crow's private jet and an island hopping tour on a super yacht estimated at more than a half million dollars had Thomas paid for it himself. Now there are reports of a real estate deal also with Crow that Thomas failed to disclose. What does all this mean? Do these revelations further erode the trust in the court and more broadly, American democracy? I'm joined by American University law professor, Steve Wormiel. Professor Steve Wormiel, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having me, glad to be here. Uh, I wanna begin uh, by having you outline in your view, what's at issue with the revelations that Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose um, very lavish gifts? So I think there's two things. Um, one is, did he actually violate any rules or break the law? And I think that's a, a difficult question. But the second is um, the judiciary, we think, should always be concerned with the appearance of impropriety. And that's not even a close call. Um, you know, he's taking incredibly lavish trips and gifts um, and, and from somebody that he claims is a close friend, uh, but he ought to be disclosing these for the integrity of the system, if not for the law. Just just on the issue of, of, of the vacations, you, you sort of alluded to it in your last answer. I mean, how clear are the existing laws just based on this failure to um, disclose? I mean, are the laws even clear that it's a violation? They were not at the time that these things were happening. Now, there's been a recent change, which we can come back to. But um, the requirement to report um, food, lodging, or entertainment had an exception for personal hospitality of an individual. So Justice Thomas is essentially saying, this is a friend of mine. Um, and, and, you know, I accepted these things from a close personal friend. Now, you know, who knows exactly what the intent was, but I think when we say personal hospitality of an individual, you know, we're talking about you're inviting me to your place for the weekend and giving me meals while I'm there. We're not talking about $500,000 trips to Indonesia. And, and multi-hundred-thousand-dollar trips to the Greek islands and, and so on. I mean, we're talking about personal entertainment in the sense that you pick up the check for tonight's dinner. Uh, there's a big difference. Mm. Uh, sir, explain, if you would, if there are disclosure laws for federal judges that are not applicable to members of the Supreme Court. So there are, although that that may be a changing a little bit. Um, the, the requirements that we're talking about here essentially come from two sources. Uh, 
Congress passed the Ethics in Government Act in 1978 after Watergate to try to promote more transparency in, in disclosure for all federal officials from you know, a security guard at the Justice Department to the Chief Justice of the United States. Um, that covers members of Congress, that covers all kinds of federal employees, it covers federal judges, and it covers Supreme Court justices. But what Congress did in that 1978 law was delegate to what's called the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is a governing body for the judiciary, the power to decide how to implement the reporting requirements, the disclosure requirements that were in that 1978 law. And the Judicial Conference has done that. It has imposed all kinds of obligations on federal judges. But the Supreme Court justices, led by Chief Justice John Roberts, have said that we're not covered by those rules adopted by the Judicial Conference. We're covered by the statute, but not by the rules covered by the Judicial Conference. Now, is that... Is that uh just the legal interpretation on Robert's part? Has Congress uh, pushed back on that or is, has it just been widely accepted? Congress has pushed back a little bit, but not quite enough to make it clear that the justices are wrong. Congress has required more financial disclosure, transparency, so that the the, uh, the financial disclosure forms, including those of the justices, are now supposed to be posted online in a readily available databank. Um, um, that's one of the main changes. What's happened most recently is that the Judicial Conference in March clarified the rule about personal hospitality to say that if the personal hospitality involves, for example, um, travel on a private plane or accommodations at a, a commercial lodging facility, that those have to be reported, that that's not the kind of personal hospitality that was exempted from reporting. And there's some indication that the justices seem to feel that they will, will need to be bound by that change. So if that were true over the past decade, then Clarence Thomas would have to have reported the, the trips that he's taken on real estate magnet Harlan Crow's private jet or, or private yacht um, in a way that Thomas has not done and has said he didn't think he had to. And, and, and for and just for, for the record, uh, we're talking one trip in particular when he did island hopping. Um, uh, that that trip alone with Harlan Crow's private jet and his private yacht, estimated to be twice the sum of uh, roughly of Thomas's annual salary. So most of us don't take vacations that are twice our annual um, salary. Uh, right. So to, to that end, 
Thomas's failure to disclose large gifts. I mean, it's certainly newsworthy. Um, is he the only justice uh, in recent memory to take advantage of what, for lack of a better word, um, a financial loophole that's been afforded um, justices on the Supreme Court? No, I, I think this is a common failure of justices to disclose. Um, and, and again, there's sort of two different questions here, if I may. Um, you know, one is, should you be taking these gifts from wealthy millionaires and billionaires? Is that appropriate? And, and then two, um, you know, what, what should you be disclosing? I mean, let, let, let's talk about an example, if I may, personal. Sure, please. Um, I wrote the authorized biography of Justice William Brennan, who died in 1997, but was on the court for 34 years. Um, when I was working on the biography, I had Justice Brennan and his wife over to dinner a couple of times. That dinner probably cost me several hundred dollars. That, I think, is what's meant by personal hospitality. I don't think Justice Brennan had to report on his form that he went to my house for dinner. Um, but we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in the value that Thomas has received from Harlan Crow. And then to your question, um, he's not the only one. Um, Justice Scalia, uh, according to an organization called, called Fix to the Court, which believes we ought to have more reporting um, and, and that there ought to be court reform. Um, Justice Scalia took a couple of hundred trips during his tenure on the court that were paid for by private individuals. Justice Breyer did the same. Justice Ginsburg, uh, the late Justice Ginsburg did the same. Um, so, so this is a pattern, um, you know, with, which offends people to varying degrees depending on how much the value of the the trip is and then what the consequences are. Both Harlan Crow and, and Justice Thomas have said they don't do any business together, that Harlan Crow hasn't had any cases come before the court that Thomas was a part of. Um, and that may be true. I I'm you know I'm not the one who did the original reporting pro publica did that work, but uh, th there can't be any doubt about the appearance of impropriety for all of these things. When, when Justice Scalia is going off on private hunting trips on private jets that are being paid for by people, um, when Thomas is taking these trips with this lavish financier, I mean, <laughs> let's be clear what we're talking about. You know, we're not talking about a little ferry boat to get from one island to another, we're we're talking about one of the fanciest yachts on the on the planet um, uh, that he's being uh, ferried around on. Um, so um, you know, this just doesn't look like the the image that that the, the Supreme Court ought to want the public to have. Uh, I'm going to come back to that last point in just a second. Let let let's talk about uh, who is. Harlan Crow, and then if you would talk specifically about the sale of the home in Savannah, Georgia, and why is this potentially 
uh, maybe even more problematic for Justice Thomas legally. So Harlan Crow is a is a huge real estate developer um, uh, all over the United States. He, he's based in Texas, but he has uh, properties all over the country and has been you know developing uh, land and buying up properties for decades. Um, He's a very active Republican donor, big supporter. He's been buying up properties all over the country for a long time and developing major projects all over the country. Um, and, and again, a, a Republican donor, the ProPublica reporting showed that at least in some instances, uh, when Thomas stayed at Harlan Crow's uh, vacation resort in the Adirondacks on a, on a private lake, um, that there were significant Republican policymakers there, like Leonard Leo, the former head of the Federalist Society, who basically helped develop the whole strategy for uh, President Trump turning the judiciary more conservative and more Republican. So, so that's one issue is, um, you know, is, um, Thomas being exposed and, and mingling with overtly political figures um, in in some of these vacations, um, and and you know what what do we think about that? The the sale of the property in Savannah, um, I think, raises the, maybe the most direct legal question: um, the Ethics in Government Act. Um, that, that the justices are bound to follow says that they shall report any real estate transactions, real property transactions over $1,000 in value. There's an exception if it's a personal resident. But what we understand is that Harlan Crow has bought several properties that were owned by Clarence Thomas um, in Savannah. And uh, at, at a value uh, um, higher than than perhaps face value, and that Thomas didn't report those transactions or the actual value of the transactions. Now, Harlan Crow says he bought them because he eventually wants to build a Clarence Thomas museum. Um, but as I understand the law, that's irrelevant. I mean, that, that doesn't. The reason you buy the properties doesn't in any way affect Thomas's obligation to have reported the transactions, which he didn't do. So of all the many allegations, the vacations and so on, um, while there's some ambiguity about some of them in terms of the legal obligations, there appears to be no ambiguity about the obligation who have reported this, this, the purchase of the properties or sale in Thomas's case um, in Savannah, and he didn't do that. Would any of this, in your view, be an issue legally for Thomas had he disclosed these transactions? And if not, I guess I'm asking you to speculate, but what might be his motivation not to disclose? Um, I mean, I have a personal view on that. I don't, you know, I don't know that that I have any special insight into Thomas's thinking. 
Um, I think Thomas has always been relatively blasé, might be the politest way I could put it, about how the public sees him. Um, I don't think he really cares much about what the what the public thinks of him or what public opinion thinks of him. I think he's developed a relatively thick skin since the allegations against him of sexual harassment all the way back in 1991 at his confirmation hearings. Um, you know, this is this may be totally unrelated, but it goes to my point about his his image. When you go to the courtroom, Clarence Thomas leans back in his chair and looks like he's asleep. Most people who go see an oral argument at the court think he's sleeping. I don't think he is. I think he's perfectly engaged and and paying attention. Um, but I don't think he cares what the public thinks about what his image is. And and this may be part of that. I think, you know, I think if he thought he had a clear legal obligation to report, I don't think he's he's necessarily deliberately saying I'm gonna get up tomorrow morning and break the law. Um, but I think if he thinks there's any discretion about it um, or ambiguity about it, then he'd just as soon say, leave me alone. I'm, I, I don't have to tell you anything. Uh, besides the law passed in the wake of Watergate, um, so it's different time periods, a number of people have made comparisons between Thomas's actions and those of former Justice Abe Fortas, who uh, resigned in 1969. Is that, in your view, a valid comparison? I think that's a tough call, and 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 I'm happy to, to sort of lay out why why I think so. Um, Please, um, Fortas was accepting money from a foundation, the Lewis Wolfson Foundation. Um, and Lewis Wolfson was a convicted um, uh, stock fraud person. Uh, you know, he, he, he was a convicted criminal. Um, and so the idea that Fortis was getting a consulting fee from this foundation of a convicted Stock swindler, um, I, I guess, seems more overt and direct a concern. Um, on the other hand, the money that Thomas is accepting in gifts um, of, of travel and trips is, you know, even adjusted for inflation, uh, probably a hundred times what, what we were talking about in in the Fortis case. I think Fortis was accepting $20,000 a year from the Wolfson Foundation, and that was in 1968, 1969. I don't know what the inflation index is for for the last 50 years, but uh, you know, Thomas's one trip alone to Indonesia for that, that seems to be valued at more than $500,000 probably would bust the inflation index compared to, to Fortis. So 
The significant point there, though, is that I don't think Thomas is engaging in activity with overt lawbreakers. Um, and, and that was part of the significant condemnation of what happened with Forty. Uh, you know, I'm going to come back uh, to something you touched on. And you talk, you, you, in several of your answers, you've talked about the appearance of impropriety. Um, spend a little time just talking about why that is so significant um, with the Supreme Court. So um, this is a principle that I think runs through all of our judicial systems, state, federal, Supreme Court, district court, and so on. We want to believe that our judges are making um, impartial arm's length decisions that that they look at a case and they take the case on the law and the facts as it comes now we're in a period in which there's lots of discussion about the supreme court being more political and more partisan about the appointment of lower federal court judges having become deeply partisan and divisive um, you know, Biden trying to outdo the number that Trump appointed and Trump trying to outdo the number that Obama appointed and so on. Um, I don't think we can get away from that partisanship and, and political concern. But we still want judges and justices who give the appearance of, of impartiality in that they are not in somebody's pocket. Um, now, you know, again, Harlan Crow and Clarence Thomas claim they have no business together, um, that, that Harlan Crow has not been before the court uh, on anything that Thomas participated in. And I don't know whether that's true or not. Well, let's take them at their word. Um, Truly, the Supreme Court has decided cases that affect real estate issues. Truly, the Supreme Court has decided cases that affect, you know, property values, that affect uh, environmental issues on, on individual property and the government's ability to regulate. Um, I, I don't know whether any of those directly affect Harlan Crow, but it doesn't look right. Um, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I was gonna say there was there was just a uh, a famous painting that has been shown at one of Harlan Crow's properties where it's Crow, Justice Thomas, and the head of the Fellow Society sitting together. You talked about sort of that partisan climate. It does feed that narrative when you have arguably the most, certainly the staunchest, strict constructionist on the Supreme Court sitting with uh, one of the largest donors to dark money interests, as well as um, to conservative causes in general, along with the member of the Federal Society who has pretty much, as you stated, crafted the conservative 6-3 majority that, the, that that's now on the court. Your thoughts? I mean, I think that's very problematic. Again, I, I, I think it raises, you know, I think there are two different issues here one is sort of political and partisan influence and the other is is monetary 
um, and and sort of um, uh, you know the appearance of of conflict influence. Um, uh, you know, Thomas goes to Federalist Society conventions and gives speeches. So do a lot of the other justices. Some of the liberal justices speak at the American Constitution Society, which is ostensibly the counterpart of the, you know, the opposite of the Federalist Society. Um, in, in my world, which we're not living in, um, I, I wouldn't have them go to either of those. Um, I, I think justices should not appear at uh, events organized by groups that are celebrating the, the, the judicial viewpoints of those justices. I think that's inappropriate. Um, but that seems to be water over the dam. No, nobody's going to stop going to the Federalist Society events and and the liberals aren't going to stop going to the American Constitution Society. So is it different if Thomas is sitting in the Adirondacks, um, you know, talking to Leonard Leo um, compared to sitting in a black tie at the dinner at a Washington hotel at the Federalist Society convention? To me, there is some difference. To me, that kind of direct personal access um, is is more problematic and more concerning, um, and and raises a greater um, question about influence and and impropriety. And and I think that's that's troublesome. I and mean, when Scalia was Scalia died in. 2016 at the, you know, at a private estate where he'd gone hunting with somebody who was also a big Republican donor and who had been involved in a case that a year or two earlier in the Supreme Court indirectly. Um, I mean, I just think this is, we, we, we need squeaky clean. There's only one Supreme Court. Their credibility is all they have. Um, they feel that themselves acutely. Remember last summer and last fall, they were fighting with each other when um, a couple of the liberal justices said the, the abortion decision raised questions about the legitimacy of the court. And, and the conservative justices, several of them fired back and said, look, you can criticize the abortion decision but don't you dare question the legitimacy of the institution. Well, you know, they need to be squeaky clean for that legitimacy. And this is, this is far from squeaky clean. Um, and, and my next question is more, of a, is more of that political climate that you sort of lamented that uh, we're not living in your world. But Thomas is filling the file is but another example, in my view, of, of sort of our polarized nature. Um, I find it hard to believe, had this been one of the three more liberal justices, that any of those supporting Justice Thomas would invoke the same arguments. And I think that really speaks to how the climate has changed, because, you know, Wrong is wrong. I didn't cover Justice Fortis, but there was was a line that once that line is crossed, you know, there was sort of bipartisan condemnation. And we just don't have that now. So 
it's 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 almost impossible to hold someone like Justice Thomas's infractions um, accountable. Your thoughts? I agree with that completely. I think um, even with this most recent change in the rules and the justices apparently saying the, the, the they may abide by the obligation to report, uh, you know, private travel and and uh, the cost of, of uh, commercial hotels and, and the like, there's no enforcement and there's there's very little accountability. Um, you know, I think they reinforce each other, but outside the marble palace, as it's known, um, I think there's no there's no accountability and it's highly partisan. Um, you know, I think if it were liberal justice, the um, there would be Republican lawmakers screaming um, for for her head. And I think if it's a conservative justice, we have liberals screaming for their head. And um, it is very much a product of the deep partisanship in our society. One might hope that the Supreme Court would be able to stay above that, but I think um, there there are big holes in their life vest. You you had mentioned um, earlier that uh, Harlan Crow um, I, and I believe Clarence Thomas as well has said that you know they're just friends. They've been longtime friends, but beyond any linear um, connection. Um, whether or not um, he, uh, Harlan Crow has undue influence with Clarence Thomas's, this case sort of bleeds over to other areas. I'm thinking, um, for example, Justice Thomas's failure to recuse himself regarding some of the January 6th cases, even though his uh, wife has uh, was involved in that case and she was uh, also uh, has uh, benefited uh, financially by way of salary from contributions by Harlan Crow. So there's a lot of ways this relationship um, uh, entangled and snarls other areas. Again, your thoughts, sir? Um, I, I, I think that is true. I, I, you know, I think Thomas is particularly, uh, as I said earlier, unconcerned. Maybe it's somewhere between unconcerned and insensitive to these issues and these problems. Um, Thomas failed to recuse himself when the court was considering an application on whether the Republican leader of the Arizona House should have to turn over phone records. And, and you know, that individual and the people around that individual were people that, that Jenny Thomas called to try to persuade them to um, uh, put up uh, other uh, delegates, you know, other electors um, to to finalize the election and and have it go for Trump. That seems to me like a pretty overt conflict, not a particularly close call. Um, but again, I think Thomas uh, believes that he he can do whatever he wants to do, and there's no mechanism inside the court um, for dealing with that situation. The justices are their individual consciences. 
on on these questions and they, they no one justice has any authority over another um and you asked earlier about the lower courts on the lower courts um the the chief judge of the court of appeals um would would have some ability to say to a judge sorry you're in conflict you need to step away from this case um but in the supreme court nobody has that power and they they claim that to give anybody that power would threaten the judicial independence of the supreme court that they need to be able to make those decisions themselves on their own um and and so you know it's a it's a revolving door it's a self-perpetuating idea you you can't touch me because i need my judicial independence and and um if i'm exercising my judicial independence in a way that ought to raise questions about my integrity um then then nobody can touch me again why because we're back to my judicial independence um so it, it, you know it's a merry ground with no way off uh, one of the uh, areas I, I would imagine, um, I'm speaking historically now, that that could be a challenge for Justice Thomas, is this is a story that that continues to have additional leaks. Um, at the time of this broadcast, it was reported uh, this morning that um, Justice Thomas reported real estate income from a company that no longer exists. Now, this this could very well be just a, a clerical error for all we know. I'm not saying it's malfeasance, uh, but it raises additional questions and it, and it sort of uh, affirms a narrative that's developing. So even in, so in this new political climate that you just alluded to, is there a tipping point? It, it, can, is, is How many of these death by a thousand cuts, if you will, um, can the system bear before you need, before you have people in the legislative branch going, wait a minute, did we have to stop this. It could happen. Um, and, and, and I don't know that there's a number that we can put on it, but, but I think you raise an excellent question, which is, um, are there going to be continued leaks? Are we now in a you know, in a stream of information. Um, this did happen with Fortis. Um, we now know with benefit of hindsight that it was uh, J. Edgar Hoover was one of the big moving forces behind it. He was leaking information about Fortis to journalists, um, the journalists being to some degree unwitting um, accomplices in Nixon's desire to uh get another seat on the court and get fortis off the court uh hoover was feeding information to the journalists not false information um but but proprietary information that was used to discredit fortis and it became a a, a kind of regular flow for a period of time that led to fortis's having to resign. Uh, part of Fortison's resignation was, I think, um, that he did consult with some friends on the court. I know from my research that he did call Justice Brennan um, and talk to Justice Brennan 
about, um, you know, what should I do? Is there anything I can do? And, um, you know, I think his advice, the advice he got from a number of justices was this is this has gone too far. You've got to leave to, to save the integrity of the court. Um, I, I, I don't know if that would happen. I don't know if fellow conservatives on the court, you know, for whom Thomas is, a, is an intellectual leader, as well as a crucial vote, would come to that point. Um, not impossible, but I certainly wouldn't predict that that's likely to happen. Well, well, to that to that end, I mean, how how do we, how does this impact the the legacy of Chief Justice John Roberts? Like, we can talk about the legacy of the Warren Court or the Burger Court or the or the Rehnquist Court. Are we just talking about with Chief Justice Roberts if he does? the bidding on and delivers opinions that say the fellow society finds amenable that he it's a it's a positive legacy or does, does this have any larger uh impact on the legacy of, chief, of the chief justice it it may i think it's hard to know um we now have organizations like fix the court um and and other entities that have become increasingly conscious of these ethics issues that may not let it die. That said, you know, uh, until the last few weeks, when's the last time you heard anybody mention Abe Fortin? Um, you know, it, it's, do these, do these financial scandals tend to fade into oblivion? Um, we remember that Justice Scalia was at a private hunting ranch financed by a private individual, but it's partly because he died there. Um, you know, we've forgotten some of the other um, situations that arose. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, this, this one seems like it has more legs. And if it does, more potential to affect the legacy of, of the Roberts court. Um, um, although with the abortion decision already and, and likely action on affirmative action and other issues later this spring, um, you know, the Roberts court is going to have a pretty strong um, legacy on, on the law that may be well more than enough to um, eclipse questions about ethical insensitivity. Well, I, 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 I will say to you, sir, that I, I actually, in my class, before this broke, I did mention Abe Fortas because, um, <laughs> because of it, because of the, um, um, I'm blanking the name on the, uh, I'm blanking the name on the case, you know, the landmark Supreme Court case um, uh, of the Klan member and to protect speech. Uh, Brandenburg. Yeah. Brandenburg, thank you. Brandenburg yeah. v. Ohio. And I, because someone asked me why was it an 8 nothing ruling, and I, I told them that Justice Fortas had to resign. That's why it was an 8 nothing ruling. So I did mention Fortas. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, I, and I actually tell that story, too, in my First Amendment class. So. <laughs> 
But that, okay, good. Now I know I'm in great company. So thank, thank you for that <laughs> affirmation as well. I appreciate it. Uh, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna further up on this, on this, on this legacy piece. Not so much specific to, 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 to Roberts, but when considering our current, you know, political nature uh, that had, now has a six-three conservative majority, and specifically how that majority was configured. When you factor the leaks uh, of the Dobbs ruling, um, there we talked about cases where uh, Justice Thomas could have, probably should have recused himself. Um, and then you think about uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett's remarks, and, she, and she's actually a part of that conversation. The Supreme Court's not a bunch of partisan hacks recent uh, history might suggest otherwise from, from a public perception standpoint. How, how do you parse that, sir? I mean, the thought crossed my mind when she gave that speech at Notre Dame um, and, and then I think repeated it in uh, uh, somewhere down south. Um, at, at the University of Louisville in Mitch McConnell's presence, ironically. Right. Um, you know, I did think me, me thinks you doth protest too much. Yeah. Um, I, the, the Supreme Court should be concerned when justices feel obligated to have to give those speeches. Um, and, um, and it wasn't just Amy Coney Barrett, it, you know, it was, I mean, Alito, Thomas, Roberts, all gave speeches saying, um, how dare you attack the legitimacy of the court? Um, you know, there's, there's two ways to respond to attacks on the legitimacy of the court. One is to make those kinds of bold assertions that you shouldn't be attacking the legitimacy of the court. And the other is to do a little bit of soul searching and think about why people are concerned about the legitimacy of the court. Uh, seems like only one of those has taken place. This is sort of Byron Williams' homespun analysis here. But a part of uh, the strength, and I guess to some degree the weakness, depending on how you look at it, of American democracy is that there's been this assumption that there were certain lines that just wouldn't be crossed until they are. There's, there's an applied assumption. And uh, I think about former President uh, Trump, who appears had financial gains just on the inauguration based on what he spent, what he raised and what was left over. We never talked about anyone having a financial windfall from, from the inauguration. Um, he didn't release his tax returns. That seemed to be something that we just took for granted. Any presidential nominee would release their tax returns. Um, he did not put his financial interest in a blind trust. So do we have a, I guess, a much larger problem in that the revelations about Justice Thomas um, further that narrative that, that we've uh, been exposed that there are loopholes that frankly just probably need to be codified. Your thoughts? Well, I, I think about that in somewhat more personal terms, if you, if I may. You um, may, sir. Um, you know, I, as you know, I teach law at American University in Washington, D.C. And one of the values 
that I think is particularly important here to me and, and, and at this law school is trying to teach students about the value of public service. Um, you know, we're in Washington. There are lots of students who, who think about all kinds of different jobs. Some of them are not necessarily thinking about working in government as um, a noble calling or, or, or what comes first to their mind. And so, um, you know, I spend time talking to students about the importance of, of good lawyers working in government and, and public service and so on. And I, I think that what you're describing undermines the ability to encourage people to go become government lawyers because it's it's it is public service because it's advancing the the public interest because it's important for the integrity of, of public policy i mean those are all uh you know we think about presidents and supreme court justices but but the rank and file workers in the federal government, including the, the lawyers in the federal government, um, are critical to the success of our democracy. And if they lose faith in the integrity um, of our government, whether because justices have conflict of interest or presidents are flaunting the, uh, the, the law, um, you know, I think that's a dangerous thing. Finally, but say beyond whatever happens with um, Justice Thomas, um, can American democracy, as you understand it, as you teach, as you talk about it, can it survive if we continue on this trajectory? Are these just bumps in the road, and um, we'll they'll be for, they'll be soon forgotten? I mean, I hope that there are bumps in the road. Um, um, you know, I have a, a one of my former professors when I was a, a college student many, many years ago, and who's still, uh, he's in his 80s, but he's very much still a mentor, um, loves to say, we've been there before. We fought a civil war. We survived. Um, uh, that history does repeat itself. And and that you know we're sometimes we learn the lessons, but we're notorious for for kind of repeating the mistakes we make. Sometimes, often in in, in different clothing, but um, but nevertheless. So I, I I still believe democracy can survive. I think we need to work at it. Uh, um, Maybe a little harder than we are. Professor Stephen Wormiel, American University. Sir, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Public Rally. It's been great to be in conversation with you, sir. Thank you, Byron. Thanks for the questions and enjoyed it very much. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. 
And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>